Aloha, this is Pastor Perry, and I want to thank you for joining us to study the Word of God together. We pray that you will be blessed as the Holy Spirit ministers to you through this message and through God's Word. I read from Deuteronomy 8, 15 through 18. Deuteronomy 8, 15 through 18. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may conform his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Josh, thanks for doing our reading today. I invite you to pray with me as we prepare our hearts for the message this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you tell us that every good and perfect gift comes from you, our Father above. We thank you for the many gifts you've given us, and we want to pause to thank you for the gifts that we take for granted that are so meaningful in our lives and that many people don't have. Lord, we think of the fact that we have clean drinking water available out of our taps. We're just so grateful that, and Lord, we look at these students from Uganda, these children, and they don't have access to that in their homes. Lord, we have access to electricity, which you take for granted, and yet around the world, there are people that don't have that and that comfort. Lord, we're mindful that we live in a safe environment, and we say thank you for that, and we take that for granted, and we thank you that we have clean air to breathe and food to eat that's easily available to us without having to search for it or hunt for it or beg for it. And we say thank you. Lord, we're grateful that we not only have a church to come to, we have a plethora of churches we can choose from. We have Bibles, and we have Bible studies, and we have podcasts, and we have videos, and we just have so much opportunity to learn about you and to grow in you. And yet, Lord, there are people around the world that have no access to these things, and we take them for granted, so we pause now to say thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us so much. And we pray that you'd help us to be good stewards of the things that you've put in our lives that we might be generous and willing to share and to help others. Lord, as we look in your word today and we talk about money, we pray that we would be taught by the Holy Spirit from your word on this subject so that we might live in a way that benefits others, benefits us, and glorifies you. Speak through me now. Use me by the power of the Holy Spirit for your glory. And we pray these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. During the financial crisis of 2008-2009, there was a lot of panic, and my friend decided that she needed a safe place to put $3,000. So she had that $3,000 in $100 bills, and she put it in the safest place she could think of, 
she put it in a plastic food container and buried it in her yard. She forgot about it <laughs> and left it there for some time. She then decided she should dig it up and she dug it up and she discovered that the plastic container had cracked. Moisture had gotten in, bugs too, I guess. And she now had a plastic container filled with kind of green mulch. She was devastated. Last week, we started our sermon part one on you and your money, and we're going to continue it today, you and your money part two. But I want to review what we talked about last week briefly. We saw as way of review, number one, your money and your heart are inseparable. Your money and your heart are inseparable. My friend was devastated when she discovered her $3,000 had turned to mulch because her money and her heart are inseparable. Jesus pointed this out in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, that includes money, but everything you have, your, your house and other possessions, for where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Your heart and money, inseparable. Well, my friend did some research, and she discovered that she could send this container of mulch to the U.S. Department of Treasury, and somehow they would try to figure out how much money that had been in there and reimburse her. So now her heart felt better about her money. She had some hope that maybe she would get some of her money back. So she sent off the mulch to the Treasury Department, and she waited anxiously because her heart and money are connected. And finally, the day came, and she opened the envelope, and it had a check from the U.S. Department of Treasury for $3,200. What a great investment it turned out to be. <laughs> Makes you wonder about the Department of Treasury and how well they count. But she was overjoyed because her heart and her money are inseparable, and so are yours. And of course, this principle is true for everyone. We saw last week, number two also, by way of review, our second principle, your use of money is an outward indication, indicator of your inner health. Your use of money is an outward indicator of your inner health. And Jesus pointed this out in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. The last part of that verse says, you cannot serve God and money or God and wealth or God and riches or God and mammon, depending on the translation. He doesn't say you should not. He says you can not because your inner health is displayed by what you do outwardly. And people who are spiritually healthy on the inside will outwardly handle their money well. But people who worship money inwardly will not handle it well outwardly. Well, today we're going to peek into our souls a little bit to see what spiritual health looks like and should look like when it comes to you and your money. We're in a series titled Life, Getting It Right, and you really can't get life right until you have your handling of money right. 
So let's look at our first principle for today. Number one, attitude is more important than amount. Attitude is more important than amount. You see, it's your attitude toward your money, not the amount of money that you have or the amount of money you give away that is the important thing. It's what you think about it. It's what's in your heart. I tried to demonstrate that a little bit with the children's sermon today. Jesus personally made this truth vividly clear to us while sitting one day in the temple treasury. And he's sitting there and he's watching how people give their offerings. Let's pick up the story in Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Mark 12, 41 says, And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Some people put in lots, other people put in little. Some people put in lots of money. And our world teaches that lots of money is what's important. And that having little money is not so important. Lots of money is always better than little money in our world's economy. But as we'll see, Jesus measures the size of the gifts not by the amount, but by the attitude. He measures the size of our gifts by the size of our hearts, not the size of the gift. Our story continues. Jesus is sitting in the temple, and the temple grounds occupied about 35 acres up on the Temple Mount. Let me show you a picture of a reconstruction, a model of what we think the temple might have looked like. This is the temple in Jesus' day. It was being rebuilt after being destroyed, and it's being rebuilt for over 46 years by King Herod because King Herod wanted to make a name for himself, and so he wanted to curry favor with the Jewish people. In fact, he even claimed to be part Jewish, though we don't know if he really was. And this is the same King Herod who had slaughtered the baby boys in Bethlehem trying to get rid of the Jewish Messiah. Well, this King Herod died in 4 BC, and he had three sons who also are called Herod to make things really confusing. So when you read about Herod in the Bible, it may not be this Herod, it may be one of his sons. Well, this large outer court that you see on either side of the temple was called the Court of the Gentiles. And it's in that large outer court where Jesus, on two different occasions, went in and he cleared out the money changers and the people selling animals. What was happening is that people were coming to worship and they were coming to give their offerings, but they were told that their money was no good because it had a pagan god on it or it had a pagan ruler on it, and they had to exchange that money for temple currency in order to give it to God. And so then they had these money changers that exchanged the money at high rates. They also had people who conveniently sold unblemished animals because people would come with an animal to sacrifice to the Lord and the priest would say, oh, I'm sorry, you can't get that animal. It's blemished, but there's one over here that you could buy. Again, at exorbitant rates. 
And that infuriated the Lord Jesus. And so in that court of the Gentiles, he overturned the tables and he made a small whip so he could drive out the animals and clear the place so the Gentiles could worship. In this court of the Gentiles, they had placed signs made of stone and those carved signs were in both Greek and Latin to warn the Gentiles not to proceed any farther into the temple. Here's a picture of one of those stone slides. I mean, a slide of, of the stone, a sign. And it says there in Greek, that's Greek, I'll read it to you in English, the translation. It says, let no foreigner enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught will be held accountable for his ensuing death. Welcome to church, everybody. <laughs> Not very friendly to the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.14 that Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. And that wall wasn't just a wall in the temple. It was a wall in the hearts of racism and bigotry. And the Lord Jesus Christ tore that wall down. You cannot be a bigot. You cannot be a racist if Jesus is indwelling your heart. He's torn down that wall. Now, Jewish women were considered better than Gentiles, but not as good as Jewish men. So they could go further into the temple to the court of the women. And here's our next slide. This slide has the temple, but it also describes some of the courts. You have the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And then inside the wall, where Gentiles couldn't go, but Jewish women could go to the next court, and they could go only that far. Then there was another court that was the court of the Israelites, which meant the Jewish men. They could go there. And then all the way in is a place where you have the place where the priests could go, and then the Holy of Holies. So each place got more restrictive. Well, in the court of the women is where they placed 13 offering receptacles. And these offering receptacles were called trumpets because they were in the shape of a trumpet. And they were made of metal. And at the very top of it, it was narrow where you put in your coins. And then it flared out toward the bottom where it collected the money. Um, you could take that slide down. Yeah, thank you. When Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, referred to the Pharisees sounding a trumpet when they gave, perhaps he had this in mind, where you could put your money into this trumpet-shaped offering container made of metal and just keep throwing money in. Chink, 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 chink. And everybody's like, whoa, who is this? Jesus was sitting in this court of the women, he was watching the people sound the trumpet, but he noticed what other people don't notice. He looks into the heart. He sees the motive. He sees the attitude of the giver. It really doesn't matter what other people think. It matters what Jesus thinks about your use of money. Your attitude is so much more important than the amount. Let's continue the story, starting again in verse 41 of Mark 12. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. How? Not just outwardly, but inwardly how? Many rich people were putting in large sums, and poor widow, a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins 
which amount to a cent. Someone told me after the service those small copper coins might be so light and flimsy because they've seen some that they would just float down, hardly even making a noise as they went into that metal container. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. More than all the contributors combined. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned. All she had to live on. Now please notice that she had two copper coins. She could have put in one, and that would be 50% of all she had. That would be pretty good. She gave it all. That's her heart. She gave sacrificially. What on earth would motivate her to do that? Her attitude. Her love for God. She worshiped God with her money to the fullest. She held nothing back. What makes her gift large is her attitude not the amount. And the same is true of any other gift. Your child giving sacrificially out of their, allo- their allowance to help sponsor a child in Uganda is a bigger gift than you giving $30 a month. Unless, of course, all you have is $30 a month, then, yeah, yours is a big gift too. It's about the attitude. It's the sacrifice. It's what's in your heart. Once when I was a poor graduate student, I felt compelled by the Lord to give some money to a family in the church who was going through a hard time. Uh, They were struggling. They needed some money. And I felt like I should give some money to them. But then I realized my attitude really wasn't right. I was giving to this family because I had a crush on their daughter. (laughs) And I thought I'd look pretty impressive if I gave some money to help them. So convicted of that, that I had the wrong attitude, I decided I just wouldn't give the money. (laughs) Yikes! I think that was the wrong response. I think if you have a bad attitude, you should get on your knees and repent and change your attitude and then give the money. I didn't do that back then. Hopefully, I've learned since then. Life getting it right means that you have come to realize that attitude is more important than amount. And am I saying... Don't give large amounts. You didn't hear me say that. I'm saying if you give a large amount, it's worthless unless you have a large attitude to go with it. And you can give a small amount with a large attitude, and that's a large gift too. And part of having a right attitude toward money is our second principle, number two. Number two, recognize that you are a manager, not an owner of your wealth. Recognize that you are a manager, not an owner of your wealth. Sometimes Christians will ask us pastors, so do I have to give 10% in my tithe? Well, tithe means 10%, so if you're tithing, you're giving 10%. But they go, do I have to give 10%? I mean, you know, we're under grace. I go, yeah, so you can give 15%. (laughs) There's no law. You have to restrict yourselves at 10%. Uh, Sometimes Christians will say, well, how much should I give to the church? And how much should I give, you know, to missions? And how much should I give to helping the poor outside the church? And I wonder if we're perhaps asking the wrong question. 
We ask, how much should I give? As if we are owners of our wealth. I would suggest that since you and I are managers of our wealth, we shouldn't say, how much should we give? We should say, how much do I get to keep? It's not ours. We're managers of God's money. Owners ask themselves what they should do with their wealth. But managers ask themselves, what does my master want me to do with this wealth? Let's take a moment to revisit a story we looked at a few weeks ago. We'll look at it briefly. Of the foolish investor. God had given him the ability to make wealth. And he got so wealthy, he thought, well, I can't handle all this wealth. And instead of deciding to share it, he decided he would hoard it and build bigger barns with it. He saw himself as an owner rather than a manager of what God had given to him. And God's blunt reply to this manager who mismanaged the wealth God put in his hands is given to us in Luke chapter 12, verse 20. We see God's response. It says in Luke 12, 20, but God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? You just prepared it for someone else to manage. You're a poor manager. I'm taking you away from the wealth you were supposed to manage. Just prior to the Israelites entering the promised land, where God promised to bless them richly. God warns the Israelites not to view his bountiful provisions as something they themselves had achieved. Looking at Deuteronomy 8, two of the verses that were read earlier, I'm going to pick it up in verse 17. Deuteronomy 8, 17 says, Otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. Don't raise your hand, but how many of us have thought that in our minds? My power and the strength of my hand has made me this wealth. Well, God says this to those of us who have thought that, verse 18, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. It's God who gave you the power to make that wealth. You go, yeah, but I was smart. I was wise. I did that. Well, yeah, but who gave you the ability to make that wealth? Any ability you have to create wealth is because God gave you that ability so you could manage that wealth for his glory. Recognize that you're a manager, not an owner of your wealth. In 1870, John D. Rockefeller founded the Standard Oil Company. He became America's first billionaire in the early 1900s. But it was even more amazing that adjusted for inflation, John D. Rockefeller would still be the wealthiest person in modern history. He was worth in today's dollars, about $400 billion. That's more than twice the next person, the richest person today, John Bezos. When asked by a reporter how much money is enough, Rockefeller, was famously, Rockefeller famously responded with, just a little more. 
Now, if we stop there with the story, you'd think, wow, what a greedy man. And some people stop there with the story. Well, let me tell you the rest of the story. Rockefeller wanted just a little more because Rockefeller believed that his purpose in life was to make as much money as possible to help his fellow man. Starting with his very first paycheck as a young man, he gave 10% to his church. As his wealth and earnings increased, so did his giving. Rockefeller had a near-death experience. He thought he was going to die. He didn't. He didn't know how much longer he was going to live. So for the next 40 years of his life, (laughs) he focused on helping others by donating his money, by giving it away. And because of his donated wealth, he eradicated hookworm and yellow fever in all of North America. Sounds to me like a good manager of God's wealth. Life, getting it right, you're not going to get it right unless you recognize that you are a manager, not an owner of the wealth in your possession. At the judgment seat, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to personally reward you for how you've managed his wealth. And he's going to look at the attitude in which you did it. Isn't that great? Let's pray. With their heads bowed, even if you're watching on TV, I'd like to ask you if you would like to inherit the kingdom of God and all its wealth. God wants to offer you that. He offers us that along with the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and it all comes through Jesus Christ. If you've never asked Christ into your life, but you understand and believe that he died to take away your sins, that he rose from the grave and he's conquered death, that he wants to come into your life, forgive your sins, and give you eternity, give you the kingdom of God. If that's something you want, I urge you right now to cry out in your heart to him and say something like, Lord Jesus, please come into my life and save me. Forgive my sins and grant me eternal life. Christian, as we continue to pray, I want you to have a moment with the Holy Spirit to think about what the Holy Spirit has been telling you before you leave this building. Let's take a quiet moment. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Lord, where you are commending us for handling your wealth Well, we humbly say thank you. We ask you to help us to continue. Where you've convicted us that we haven't been handling wealth well for your glory, we ask your forgiveness. And with all this, we give you our gratefulness that you have given us so much. Lord, help us to be good stewards, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.